Hello, everybody, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Slasher Saturday podcast, and this week is a special one, Halloween 2. My name is Derek. My name's Eleanor, and if you are interested in an audio-only version of this podcast, we are on Samsung Podcast, Amazon Music, and Spotify, as well as a couple other platforms. Just go in your search bar and type in Slasher Saturday, and that's where you'll find us. This is the podcast where we look back at the most classic horror movies of all the subgenres and evaluate their impact on the genre today and which franchise it came out in. And this is a movie that is quite divisive. Um, I f at least I feel like it is. Uh, just reading online people's thoughts, um, the consensus of this film at the time was not super favorable by critics. Uh, some fans and critics went on to say that it was an abomination compared to the original and then uh, and said it was uh, just basically trying to outgore some of the earlier copycats. So pretty harsh, pretty harsh stuff. Right. But later, when some more Halloween sequels came out, critics and fans kind of warmed up to this movie a little bit some of them um they went on to think that okay even though it's not as good as the original it was better than some of the later sequels some people swear up and down that this movie is better than the original and some people say that this movie is where they ruined michael myers by revealing his motivation that he's only killing because he's trying to kill his last surviving family member so it seems like it's a movie where either you hate it, you love it, and just going to get it out of the way now. We have opinions, and we're all allowed to have them. It's totally okay to have different opinions, and it's great to hear other people's perspectives. Me and Eleanor don't agree on everything, and I really like to hear her side, and I hope she likes to hear my side once in a while. But uh, <laughs> Halloween 2 was the most successful financially slasher film of 1981 even beating out friday the 13th part 2 jason Voorhees' debut and maybe that's not a fair comparison but it is a slasher icon um so it was financially successful it had a much bigger budget than the original but it did not make as much i believe uh halloween 2 went on to make around oh a little over 25 million and the original was over 47 million worldwide so it was a big disappointment to some fans. That being said... Sequels can be really tough, you know? Sequels, sometimes it's hard to make money on them. So I always cut this movie a little bit of slack, but I mean, I like it, so... <laughs> Spoiler alert, I like it. <laughs> so this 1981 film was directed by Rick Rosenthal and produced by John Carpenter, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who of course did the first movie. Uh, it, the cast stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, Charles Cyphers, and Lance Guest. The music was done by Alan Haworth, and it was distributed by Universal Pictures, being released on October 30th, 1981, with a runtime of a solid 92 minutes. Stepping in for Nick Castle's The Shape in this film was Dick Warlock. Nick Castle went on to be a director, and they were not able to get him back for the sequel. 
He had some pretty big shoes, maybe one might say a pretty big mask to fill, but I think he did a good job overall. The film opens up with a shot that is very similar to the opening scene, where we are only able to see what's behind the camera. He is looking down the alley, he's looking into a house, and he ends up seeing an older, elderly couple. One's, uh, the husband is falling asleep watching TV and you get some comment from the wife, oh, you asleep again? And she's cutting up tomatoes or something. And you know, Michael is going into the house and you think, oh boy, this couple's a goner. Uh, surprisingly, he let them live. Uh, you do see that Donald Pleasant's character, Dr. Loomis, um, who saw Michael's imprint on the grass from where Michael had fallen. Right, he fell off the balcony after being shot in the first movie, which the cold open of this movie is the ending scene of the first movie. It, it really sets you up well to go into the sequel. And he is basically trying to follow the blood and whatnot, and Michael does end up, in fact, leaving a few drops of blood on the cutting board where the knife is now missing, which leads to that woman screaming and a neighbor overhears. Michael, who is walking by this neighbor's house, stops in the darkness where he cannot be seen and that neighbor is out screaming hey are you guys okay everything okay and michael has now found his next victim and the first kill in this movie she goes inside and answers her phone and can, is talking to somebody and we know that michael is in the house at this point and right away he comes out of nowhere stabs right in the chest and we get a good a decent amount of blood which was instantly like, okay, so this movie already... The stakes are a little higher, I would say. I don't know that. if the stakes are higher, but it's instantly going more graphic. They're instantly yeah. trying to, you know, you're like, okay, so the kills in this movie are going to be a little more uh, a little more graphic, a little less tame than the original. Right. You know, it's going to lean more into the slasher aspects, the more slasher tropes versus kind of the more thriller Right, and I mean, by the amount of blood we see, I mean, you kind of see it a little bit on her teeth and a little bit coming out of her mouth, and you're like, okay, that seems realistic. It doesn't seem as PG-13. Seems a little more real to me. Lori is then taken to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, where Jimmy, her, basically the guy that's crushing on her, he's an EMT, and he ends up visiting her multiple times throughout the movie, going into her room when he shouldn't be allowed, and you have nurses kicking him out, and he's basically just a guy who's really into Lori, and he's one of the characters in this movie, but he's kind of not really all that important. He's I just like. a minor character, I feel like. Meanwhile, Dr. Loomis and Sheriff Brackett are patrolling the town, trying to find Michael. Uh, Dr. Loomis is hysterical, saying, I shot him six times! I shot him six times! He's alive! I shot him six times! And he basically <laughs> says it like six times. And uh, okay, Sheriff Brackett's like, okay, Jesus Christ, all right, I believe you. And they're running around town, and they see a guy who they think is Michael. He's wearing a Michael Myers mask, after all. <laughs> and... Uh, they're chasing him down. Dr. Loomis is going to shoot the poor guy. And all of a sudden, this kid gets hit by a car and, and the car explodes. Catches on fire. The kid's dead and burns. And they're like, was that him? And we all know it's not him. But it's like, holy right. shit. What a graphic death. 
like way more graphic than anything in the original. Right. It went pretty brutal pretty quickly. You can definitely say that that guy got barbecued a little bit. <laughs> At the time, it is assumed that Myers was killed, but uh, of course we all know that Michael's not even anywhere in that area. Uh, back at the hospital, Jimmy is trying to get it on with Lori as she's all drugged up and half dead. She's got a rolled up ankle and he's just really kind of creeping on her. I mean, maybe she's a friend and, you know, or, or maybe he's a friend of hers, but I just didn't really understand what was going on there. But I digress. The important thing that he tells her, though, in that scene is that Michael Myers was hunting her and she realizes like, oh, that guy in the mask was Michael Myers, the guy from the hospital that escaped. Yeah, at least there was some point, you know, of course. Um, yeah, and she said, oh, God, Michael Myers from the Myers house, the little kid that killed his older sister or younger sister or older sister. Yeah, yeah. older sister. And uh, all of a sudden she's like, oh, my, she's horrified. And that was a nice touch because you never really thought about it when watching the original. Like, she didn't ever really know it was Michael Myers. She never called him Michael right, in the she, original. She says Michael to him a lot in the series, but it wasn't in that first movie. Right, which is not something I ever really thought about until this movie kind of brought it up. So I did. that was something I did like. Of course, a few shots later, we see Michael walking through the strip mall, and you hear the music, and he bumps into a kid that's got a radio. And he hears on the radio that Laurie Strode is alive and has been taken to a hospital and he ends up following one of the workers there once there michael cuts the lights cuts the phone lines and begins to start picking everybody off one by one um, of course he ends up leading the uh the heavier weight security guard i wasn't garrett mr garrett yes. and uh he's talking to a nurse she's got a walkie-talkie that she has no idea how to use and she's got to get back upstairs and of course he's going very very slowly through this building and i thought it kind of went on maybe a little longer than it should um but i digress he was going through he was being thorough and he was obviously very scared and it was building suspense so i'll give it that but eventually he gets a hammer to the skull he opened or he closes the door hammer to the skull it and was a nice jump scare. It's like he opened a supply closet, goes, oh, there's no one in here, and then closes it, and there's Michael. And I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. But it still, it, it did get me. It did get me. I will give it that. And the first the first one actually got me, too. I was surprised, because right. none of the none of the jump scares in the original really get me, other than maybe the one where he pins the guy to the wall. I think that kill is brilliant. But I would say so far, the kills in this movie have been little more brutal i would say yeah and the jump scares are just a little quicker maybe so it just right. you know even if they're predictable they're just so quick that it gets you anyway later on we meet bud a paramedic and kara a maternity nurse and uh they like to uh get it on while they're at work and of course very responsible bud <laughs> has been you know he's been drinking he's been smoking weed and he really wants to get it on with kara and Kara's basically late for work already as it is. Uh, the very authoritative nurse was uh, giving her directions and saying, hey, you need to be here on time. And if you're not here, if you're 10 minutes late, that could be life or death. I really like that little, that little bit between the two. Yeah, she's definitely a responsible adult and very badass woman. I appreciated her. The authoritative nurse. Yes, exactly. I can't remember her name for the life of me. So then Kara and Bud later meet up 
and they meet up in a hydrotherapy pool, which is just a fancy word for a hot tub. And you see them, you know, they're kind of making out in the hot tub. And Michael sneaks up in the kind of the control room behind them and starts turning the water up so it gets uncomfortably hot. I mean, it starts getting to dangerous levels. And Kara looks at Bud and goes, it could get a little cooler in here. You know, giving him the hint of, you're not getting anything from me unless you turn the temperature back down. So he gets out of the hot tub goes, okay. And goes over to that side room and sees that, oh yeah, the water is getting a little hot. And we see, from Kara's perspective, she gets out of the hot tub and is sitting on the side of it. And in the background, Michael grabs like a cord or something, a cord, a rope, something like that. And strangles Bud, without Kara knowing... And then comes back into the room behind her, and she has no idea. This kill was kind of creepy in a way, but also really brilliant. And, I mean, it was creepy not from Michael. <laughs> Would oh, you agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, he, he sneaks up behind her. He's got his hand behind her. And she's like, oh, bud, what do you, I got to get back to work and all this. And she starts, like, kind of caressing his hand. And for a second, he's letting it happen. You're like, what? Michael's not really ever been, like into a sexual thing but then she starts like kind of like nibbling on his thumb and that's when he pulls his hand away and he's like what the fuck and she turns around obviously and you see william shatner and all of a sudden <laughs> captain kirk is dunking her head and this was the kill of the movie for me oh, i mean yeah, definitely. he's dunking her and it's not like even though she's naked it doesn't like glorify the fact that she's naked you know he's not grabbing her in a sexual way of any kind it's not focusing on her ass jiggling while she's drowning you know it's it could have been a lot worse than what it was um although right. there was a lot of behind the scenes stuff with that a lot of trauma for the actress That's doing really it unfortunate. and it should you know it's really not necessary for whatever i mean uh i i really just it wasn't about the fact that she was topless that was important for the kill she was topless because she was just so happened to be having sex beforehand. It adds a little bit of vulnerability, but right. they didn't need to sexify it. And it could have been worse. It could have been portrayed worse than what it was. But the right. kill itself was brutal. And it was so far the most brutal kill we've seen Michael do. And it was definitely my favorite kill of the yeah, movie. Yeah, he, he literally like dunks her like an Oreo into a glass of milk over and yeah, over. And over. You, you, he pulls her at, back up and each time her face just looks a little more string cheese-like. And it's like, holy shit, yeah. He's rotten her to her brain and eventually she hits the floor and she's still. And it was kind of chilling yeah she was really blistered up it was bad like that would be the worst way to go i would say it definitely shows how sadistic michael is in this Lori is aware that michael's alive that he's out there that he's gonna want to finish what he started and Lori ends up faking kind of like a vegetative state and nurse jillian uh ends up leaving and jimmy ends up leaving uh they, they're, they're, they're worried sick. They think that she's dying. And one of the nurses, Janet, finds Dr. Mixter, the head doctor, dead with a syringe jammed into his right eye. And at this point, Lori has already escaped her room. Uh, she's limping. She's not doing good. But she's on the run. She's trying to live. She's fighting to live. Also, Janet got a syringe jammed in her head when uh, she was in there with Dr. Mixter. 
Michael just snuck up behind her, jammed it right in her temple, just like instant pulmonary embolism. Just, woo, brutal. <laughs> Once in the parking lot, Jillian finds that not only her tires to her car, but every tire in the parking lot has been slashed and that the engines have been tampered with. There's oil around the cars. Nobody's going anywhere. And somebody's done that intentionally. Jimmy discovers the gruesome side of Mrs. Abs, the head nurse. Her blood drained out with an IV tube. And when he tries to flee, <laughs> he slips and falls real hard on his head. And it kind of knocks him out. I'm guessing he's kind of having some brain hemorrhaging or something. Yeah, Something's he hit the going back on of his head guy. Really it's a hard. little, it's a little ambiguous, but it looked like a rough landing. Jillian rushes back inside the hospital where she sees Lori limping down the hallway, and that is when Michael comes out. You know, Jillian calls her name. Michael pops out behind her and gets her right in the back, lifting her up with, what, a scalpel? Yeah, with a scalpel, and it's very reminiscent of the kill of Bob in the first movie where he was kind of lifted off the ground. Lori runs downstairs into the boiler room where she finds the body of Mr. Garrett, and Michael is, of course, on the chase. And we have Michael v. Lori Part 2. And from earlier this night, she just cannot seem to get away from the shape. She rides up to the lobby in an elevator, and of course, Michael very slowly, might I add, is trying to stick his hand into the elevator and just, ah, just not quite there. She ends up getting upstairs and runs out into the parking lot and hides in a car. Now, this is kind of where some of the critiques of this movie I understand where they're coming from because this is where a lot of people are just acting a little stupid so that the movie can happen, right? Like right. Michael, even Lori, Michael's a even stupid. Michael, even Michael, even Michael's walking a little slower than normal to let that elevator shut door. She runs into the car and you know she's hiding, which isn't the worst spot in the world, I suppose. But we'll see where she goes from there. Dr. Loomis then learns that it wasn't Myers who was killed in the accident. They get the dentist there. They realize that it's a 17-year-old kid who's been missing all day long. They, of course, find the scrawled word of Samhain, which I am butchering pronunciation, in blood on a chalkboard where Michael has previously been. Loomis explains that it is a Celtic word that means Lord of the Dead, the end of summer, and October 31st, Halloween. Loomis' assistant from the first film, Nurse Marion Chambers, arrives and tells Loomis that the governor has ordered him back to Smith's Grove after word got out that he had shot Myers six times! I shot him six times! <laughs> and had sent a federal marshal to assure that Dr. Loomis cooperated. And basically, these two were not going to take no for an answer. Dr. Loomis needed to come back to the hospital. And they get about halfway there before he shoots out the window and makes them drive back. That was pretty funny because he's like, what do you people do? Fire a warning shot? And then he Pop. fires it. And then the guy immediately turns around. It's like, yeah, I would have done the same thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lori, who's been sleeping and hiding outside in the car, is awoken when Loomis pulls into the parking lot. And she tries to call out, but they can't hear her. She's not getting her voice heard she can't she's just so scared that she's not able to get her voice out but then as soon as the door shuts oh it's no problem anymore 
that I just took it as she was too full of fear that she just hadn't used her voice in so long. She's just so up on drugs and full of fear. You know, you know, in those nightmares where you're trying to scream out for help, but you have no voice. It's terrifying, right? Right. Or those dreams where you try to run and you can't move. That's kind of how I look at it. But I understand if some people look at it as just like, eh, that's just lazy writing so that, you know, they don't hear her and see Michael in the shadows behind her. I get Which it. Which is kind of how I took it at first. That's fair. I would definitely say I took it that way at first just because I'm like, if I were in that situation, I feel like I would get up and be running and be like, no, y'all, turn around, let's get in the car and go. You know, I wouldn't have let the end of the movie play out the way it did. But I can definitely see your perspective of this could be definitely like a bad dream situation where she can't yell. I wouldn't necessarily call it entirely lazy writing, but I would definitely say it is a pretty low hanging fruit if we're if everyone's catching my drift like it's not the laziest of writing but it's pretty easy for that to happen and especially because she gets up and starts hobbling over to the door and we see michael patrolling very slowly (laughs) right once again michael's probably slower than he's ever been but that's okay she gets up and she gets inside right as michael gets to her loomis opens the door gets laurie in and michael just very calmly walking bursts through the glass which i thought was really cool it shows like okay he really is just like an unstoppable force he's kind of superhuman with the strength because he just like walked through the door like it was open even though it was closed (laughs) and once again loomis unloads his clip or unloads his gun on michael and michael slowly falls to the ground loomis tells nurse chambers to go out to the police car to call for backup radio for backup And that's when there's this dumb exchange between the officer where he's like, I'm the only one that's authorized to use my walkie-talkie. This is a life or death situation. I need to be the one to use my walkie-talkie. It's It's like, like, dude, you're the court martial. You need to take care of the bad guy. And of course, then he leans over to check Meyer's body. And anyone who's seen a horror movie, you know it's a horror movie trope. The guy's not dead. We all know he's not dead. It's no surprise that this guy's going to die. But the fact that Michael then pulls him over and slits the marshal's throat... I was like, okay, I still like the kill. I mean, it was obvious. I did see it coming, but overall, I did still like to see a nice little throat slit in there. Right. It's it's always a nice touch, definitely, for a slasher film. You got to have at least one. At that point, you kind of have Sam, uh, Sam Loomis, Dr. Loomis and Lori run up the hallway, and they're like, oh, shit, and they run up the hallway, close the door behind them, and I didn't understand this point where they just look at the in the window at Michael to see if he's going to get up and come after them. Like, of course he's going to get up and come after you. <laughs> I like that uh, Dr. Loomis and Lori were running away to get into an operating room. They did kind of hang out a little bit too long, I feel like. They, they kind of watched. They're like, oh, he's coming. It's like, yeah, I would have gotten out of there by well, now, Well, there was dude. nowhere to go. And where were they, they going to go? He <laughs> I was, have no he idea. He came from the front entrance. So their thought is, oh, well, get into a safe room and barred up the door if they can. I understood it, but that's just me. I mean, if you feel like it was a dumb decision to hide in the room, divulge on it. I just like, I don't know. I feel like maybe I didn't get the layout of this hospital as well as I got the layout of the houses in the first movie. So I felt like there there has to be another exit nearby. But if they're nearest to the OR, it would make sense to hide in there. And the end scene was brilliant, so I think they did the best they could with, you know, the resources they had. 
Lori is essentially in a fetal position cowering in the corner as Michael is bursting through the glass and the door and Loomis goes to shoot him and realizes that he never reloaded and therefore Michael is able to stab him with the scalpel knocking him several oxygen tanks. Michael then approaches Lori and she fires the gun and shoots both of his eyes after saying his name for the first time in the Halloween franchise, Michael, twice. And you did see him kind of react for a second, and then he kept on going. He wanted to kill her regardless. And he gets that epic look where the blood is dripping from both of his eyes. And I think, whatever you think of this movie, that shot of the blood coming out of both of his eyes, I thought was really cool. I thought it was a really cool, just overall imagery of horror and i think it's been an image that has been all over the place ever since i mean it's a very popular image whether you've seen the movie or not you've probably seen an image of michael's eyes bleeding you know what i mean i think it's you know some people didn't like it where he's swiping in the air for quite some time as they're uh opening more tanks of different chemicals to kind of confuse his hearing. I really liked that. I mean, if you take out his vision, it's like a shark. If a shark can't see you or can't smell you or something, you have a better chance. If you're getting hunted by a mountain lion and you're able to poke its eyes out, you might stand a little bit better of a chance. You're still probably going to get killed, but you might stand a little bit better of a chance. Same thing with Michael Myers, right? Right, exactly. He's a predator, and if you take out one of his main ways of hunting, he has to resort to something. One of his main senses, right. his sight, and that's when Laurie is able to escape. And we see that Loomis has been hanging on to that lighter ever since he hung on to it and didn't smoke that cigarette. He sparks it up, and there's a big explosion, presumably killing Loomis. And we see Michael able to leave that room, still burning, and collapses, still attempting to kill his surviving family member. That is where we see him basically burned to a crisp, kind of like Darth Vader. And uh, that is it. That is the end of Michael and Loomis, presumably. And that was the original plan from John Carpenter that this was the final story. There was no more story to tell. And in the final scene, Laurie is transferred to another hospital and it shows Laurie with a calm, serene look like she can finally close this horrible, horrible Halloween night for good. So Derek, what are your overall thoughts of this film? I am not somebody that loves everything about it just because it's a Halloween movie. And I'm not somebody who hates it just because they made Michael and Lori siblings. To me, that was how I was introduced to Halloween. My first Halloween movie experience was H2O. And the main storyline in that was basically the whole sibling thing and family. And I have always loved that about the Halloween franchise. Now, maybe the way they revealed it in Halloween 2 was not as thought-provoking as I would have liked it to be. It does kind of give a unnecessary motive to a part human, part supernatural, faceless killer that maybe doesn't need to be there. But that's why I like Halloween 2018, because it's different. It maybe stays more in line with what John Carpenter did with his original film. Even though it was John Carpenter writing this movie, um, he had a lot of drinking problems and a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of 
writer's block that he basically took the blame for and was like, yeah, I made them siblings because we wanted to make money and I had nowhere to go with the story. I felt like the story was done after the original and I didn't want to direct the sequel. That being said, it changed horror forever. I mean, whether or not you love this movie or hate this movie, this movie did impact the horror genre. It was the most successful slasher sequel at the time. And without it, we wouldn't have movies like Halloween 2018 or Halloween Kills. Some of you hate Halloween Kills. Some of us love Halloween Kills. Or there's people like me with Halloween Kills and with Halloween 2 where it's like, out of the Halloween sequels, I think they're definitely better than most. But it's still not quite as good as the original. I will say, though, I've only seen Halloween 2 maybe two or three times. And each time I watch it, I like it more. Whereas with Halloween Kills, the characters feel dumber in Halloween Kills than in Halloween 2. But the kills overall are better in Halloween Kills. You get that what I'm saying? Sense. And for me, the kills are important in a Halloween movie or in any slasher movie. What about you, though? I mean, I've gone on and on about this. What is your initial thoughts? Because there's certain things that we disagree on. That's okay. It's okay to have different opinions. That's what makes this fun. It wouldn't be interesting if we agreed on everything. I would say, overall, I really like Halloween 2. It's got some really gruesome moments. Um, it's got some really wholesome moments as well. And it's got a lot of thought-provoking times as well. They do go a lot more into the psyche of Michael Myers, which some people may not be into, but I like it. I like being able to pinpoint motives. Um, I kind of, you know, I, I listen to serial killer podcasts and stuff like that, so I really like being able to hear motives and know why people do the things they do. And I guess the reason why Michael Myers is so scary for a lot of people, including myself, is the fact that you can't pinpoint one motive on him, typically, in a movie. And that he just seems to have no motive whatsoever in a lot of the times. I would say the sibling thing is not my favorite storyline, but I can see why it makes sense. I can see why you would do that from a writer's standpoint of, well, if you make him go after Lori again, you have to give him a motive to go to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital to kill Lori specifically. And making her a younger sister would make sense for that to happen. Right. There's a lot of similarities, I would say, between Halloween 2 and Halloween Kills. For instance, Lori Strode spends most of her time in a hospital with not a lot of screen time, or at least not a lot of things to do. Um, Michael's motivation is also revealed in both timelines in the in these films whereas in halloween 2 it's because laurie's his sister who is the last survivor of house myers whereas in halloween kills it's all about his home or at least that's what it's implying so far halloween right. ends could change that but halloween kills kind of greatly suggested that no he's just been trying to get back home both films kind of suggested his motivations both films kind of had dumb people or at least dumb decisions made um and both films were more graphic than the film that came before it uh it's really a matter of taste but i would say both are in the higher tier of halloween movies i would definitely say that as well you know yeah. i don't think that halloween 2 is better than the original but i do think halloween 2 
does certain things better than the original. I could see that. Yeah. I also really liked the new addition to the music. Um, it wasn't as good as the original, but I would say it gave it more of a gothic feel. Kind of more of an 80s vibe as well. It was a little more ominous. But I did really like it. Um, we are going to briefly go into some interesting facts about this movie, as we always like to do. It was originally going to be set in the future. Uh, John Carpenter empathically killed Dr. Loomis. He did not necessarily want to do it, but he thought that it was the right time for both both characters, Pleasant's character as well as the shape. Michael in this movie wears the exact same mask, or at least one of the masks that Nick Castle wore in the original. Unfortunately, it did sit in a back pocket a lot of the times of Nick Castle and underneath a bed in Deborah Hill's apartment where she smoked profusely. So the mask does look a little bit different, plus it does fit differently on Dick Warlock's head. John Carpenter regrets the choice of making Laurie and Michael related. He blamed it basically on not having much story left and it was basically a function of having to become involved in a sequel where he didn't really want to do it, but he wanted to get the money for it. And those are all things that, you know, he eventually lived up and earned, uh, he owned up to eventually. Right. Originally, he kind of put it on Rosenthal, but it is kind of a shared experience. It's a shared contribution movies are a collaborative effort right it's so not any one it's person's not just fault. any one decision that made the movie an abomination to some people the movie was originally not as violent but john carpenter himself worried that the film wouldn't be as scary unless some changes were made to make it more extreme which is funny because the original press screening or whatever the original screening for halloween was said to be not scary and then john carpenter had to go back and made the epic halloween theme and then with the halloween theme the movie all of a sudden was scary it's amazing the things that music can do with a movie but john carpenter was worried that this movie would suffer the same fate so he wanted to up the gore and up the kills cop driving the squad car that hit tramer was of course dick warlock who ended up playing michael in this film like we said before, Nick Castle went on to be a director and was not able to return for this movie. Dick Warlock does have a pretty cool story, however, of how he was able to earn the role, where he went in to basically do a test with Rosenthal. He went into Rosenthal's office, and on his way to Rosenthal's office in the hallway, he saw the Michael Myers mask sitting in an adjacent room, so he put it on and walked into the office, proceeding to stare coldly at the director, rather than answering any of the director's questions. And because he felt so unnerved, he ended up giving Rosenthal the position and giving him the part, which I thought was a great way to earn your spot as Michael Myers. They I thought always, that was really cool. They always say, dress for the job you want, and he definitely took that one to heart. There is, of course, many more fun facts you can find about Halloween 2 and, of course, the entire Halloween franchise, for that matter. And there are a lot bigger Halloween fans that, of course, could, if they feel free, want to post it down in the comments below. That would be great. And any of you guys that would like to see a certain specific horror movie on the channel, or if you think there's a good movie that maybe we should see, please let us know because we're always open to your guys' favorite movie picks. 
Like we said before, if you are interested in a podcast version of this show, then you can get that on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and Samsung Podcasts, as well as wherever else you may get your podcast services. Please consider subscribing to the channel as it really does help support us. And come back tomorrow for Shipwreck Sunday, the highlight of the week as it is every week, hosted by my wife, Eleanor, Shipwreck Sunday. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Derek. My name is Eleanor. Bye-bye.